I was thinking this week about the number of times and, and places in art and in popular culture that a certain theme pops up, and that is the theme of people who are lost or wandering or in exile, and all they're trying to do is to get back home. I imagine that most, if not all of us, if we were to sit around and say, uh, well, what can you think of where that happens? A book or a movie or a TV show or legends that are built, or we could all come up with one or two at least. So because I'm quite the fan of Star Trek, and we are in between seasons of my favorite incarnations of that world, I went back, I've started to rewatch the series Star Trek Voyager from the late 90s and early 2000s. It's all about getting lost and trying to find their way back home. The crew of the Voyager find themselves stranded on the other side of the galaxy, 70,000 light years away in the Delta Quadrant, and I'm sounding just like the nerd that I am about this. There's another nerd in here because I heard the Star Trek combat sound going off during the prayer. I heard it. I don't know who it was, but I'm with you. That calls to mind all sorts of other shows. Lost in Space, Battlestar Galactica, there's a theme here. The show Lost, Gilligan's Island. To say nothing of Homer's The Iliad and the Odyssey, which date back to the 8th century B.C., it's modern-day retelling of the film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There's always the classic The Wizard of Oz. Each of these are fitted with characters who just want to go home, maybe for different reasons than one another, but that's what they're trying to do, get back home. And it's possible that might describe some of us this morning, in the room or online, metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking. Maybe some of us uh, feel a bit lost, we're on a journey toward home, but we may not know exactly what that looks like. And of course, this theme of returning home is also a major theme in the pages of our Bibles. This past summer, we went through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and together each week we ask, how does what we're reading here lead us to Jesus? How does it speak into the larger story of Scripture? For on a very profound level, that meta-narrative in Scripture is about finding our way back home to God, back home to the Garden of Eden. That place where, as we were shown in Genesis 1 and 2, where heaven and earth overlapped. But when the first humans blew it, they were exiled from the Garden. And then as Genesis 1 through 11, those chapters unfold, we see people continue to be scattered and move eastward away from God and away from the Garden until they got to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, where you remember God confused the languages of the people and scattered them even further from home. And then comes chapter 12 verses 1 to 3 the Lord had said to Abram go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you I will make you into a great nation I will bless you I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you fail to mention I don't want to fail to mention here that when Abram hears this call he is away from home and God is in essence calling him back home and then from that time on, literally or figuratively, God has been about the epic tale of bringing his people and all nations home to himself. Through the exodus, the giving of the law, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, God has always been about restoring something that was lost in the Garden of Eden. 
Even in the imagery, in, when we get to our New Testaments, of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River is a callback, an intentional callback, to the people of Israel entering into the Promised Land after the Exodus. And believe it or not, all of Genesis 1-11 through 11 and everything that comes after that speaks directly to what we will discover in the pages of Paul's letter to the Ephesians this fall. Paul's letter opens this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> this is a rather typical way that a letter might open in the ancient world. But let's lift out a couple of details that will help us uh, a little bit as we step a little more deeply into things. First of all, we have never seen, no one has ever, well, no one in this age has ever seen Paul's original letter to the Ephesians. All we have are copies of copies. And in some of those earliest copies of this letter, that phrase, in Ephesus, is not there. Because of this, many scholars believe that this was originally a general letter that Paul sent to several churches, what, if the Pope did it today, we would call an encyclical letter. It's intended for reading by many churches. And why does this matter? It matters because it means that the letter is a broader, <clears throat> more general approach to some of Paul's most important theology. Paul's other letters, more often than not, are dealing with a crisis or a conflict or an error in teaching or theology that he's trying to correct. But here, as we will see, there appears to be no real crisis in the church in Ephesus. Paul is simply telling them something he knows is important for all of us, wherever or whenever we are. So I think we're getting some of Paul's core theology here, and that makes it a little more easily accessible and applicable to us all. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, second, that phrase, in Christ Jesus, there in the second line. Some version of that phrase, in Christ, in him, occurs 164 times in Paul's letters, and here in Ephesians it pops up 36 times. <clears throat> that means that it matters more than we might first think it matters when we first see it. It carries some important meaning that we're going to begin to dig into shortly. For now, it is enough to say that this phrase, in Christ, is not merely a poetic metaphor. It is something that is literally true, theologically speaking. It is literally true about our geography, we could say. We who have come to faith in Christ Jesus are in Christ in the same way that we were in Tippecanoe County, or wherever you happen to be, if you're worshiping online, I don't know, let's say China. <laughs> Paul then moves into the introduction to his letter. In the original language of his letter, the Greek, <clears throat> verses 13 to 14 are one long run-on sentence in which Paul layers subordinate clauses on top of subordinate clauses. The sentence is 257 words long. That's five words longer than the Gettysburg Address. Now truthfully, is this not the kind of thing that would be all marked up in red if we turned it into our high school English teacher? But Paul gets away with it. He does it on purpose because he had, what he has to say here is so beautiful, so theologically profound that it just kind of explodes all over the page. Fortunately for our sakes, 
translations have broken it up with punctuation and some other things to help us out a bit. But it is not insignificant that it is one long sentence originally. It speaks of Paul's passion. It speaks of everything uh, we're about to read as being connected. And it can have, that connection can have powerful implications for us. Paul introduces things uh, by offering up a beautiful poem of praise for all that God has given us in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read this out of the English Standard Version uh, this time, as this part of it anyway, as the, the ESV tends to be a little more literal than the NIV that we normally read from. I think it'll help us see a few things. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. You may have noticed the ESV did their best to try to make this one sentence. It's actually two, but it's very long. And that's not even the whole sentence. That's just the first part of the sentence. It continues on in the verses that follow. But there's already a lot there. Bless God, Paul says. Because he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, every blessing that comes to us from the Spirit of God. Two questions, two questions. What are those spiritual blessings and how do we get them? What are the blessings and how do we get them? Well, Paul is about to list out for us the spiritual blessings, at least the ones that he is concerned with in this context of this letter. And he's already given us a clue as to how these blessings are accessed. They come to us when we are where? In Christ. When we are in Christ. He gave us that phrase in verse 1, and in the section we just read, some version of it pops up seven times. Whatever these blessings are, they come to us in, through, and from Jesus Christ. But I don't want us to miss something here. That word blessings. It ties us all the way back to the call of Abram in Genesis 12. Why? Because in and through him and his descendants... Christ being one of them. In and through him and his descendants, God promised to bless all the families of the earth. So yes, we receive the spiritual blessings when we are in Christ. We put our faith in Christ. And because we have received these blessings, we too can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. The nations. The overflow of God's blessings, God's spiritual blessings, upon us who are in Christ spills out and washes over those who are not yet in Christ, and they too are blessed. <clears throat> and the blessings that Paul lists out for us are, in verse 4, in Christ we are chosen. In Christ we are chosen, but not merely for salvation at the end of the age, not only, as we like to say, to go to heaven when we die, but to be holy and blameless in his sight now. This, in fact, is our salvation. It's not just that we live forever with God in the afterlife. It is that we are already holy and blameless in His sight. Second blessing, verse 5. Through Christ, we are predestined to sonship. 
Through Christ we are predestined for adoption to sonship. The reason that the phrase adoption to sonship is there is because the word doesn't mean what, that just that we've been adopted. The word used means that in that context, in the important uh, Roman world, which Paul was a part of, it means that we, males and females, have received all the rights that come with being sons. The heirs to the inheritance of that very patriarchal culture. It's for all of us now. But my guess is that for most of us, if we got hung up on anything in, in these words, it's not the word sonship that we're hung up on. It's probably the word predestined. Stay tuned. We'll come back to that, I promise. Third blessing, found in verse 7. <clears throat> in Christ we have been redeemed and forgiven of sins. In Christ we've been redeemed and forgiven of our sins. Now that, that part most of us have heard about. We, we may have expected to be more at the top of the list of the spiritual blessings, but we've heard about it. All three blessings come to us in and through Christ, as does the final blessing that Paul mentions in a second here. And this one, this last one, in this context, is a doozy. It's why we've called the sermon series what we have. Verses 8 through 10, we are told the fourth blessing is, in Christ, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. In Christ, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. So I want to read us that section again, or part of it anyway, beginning with part of verse 8. <clears throat> with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under, or more literally, in Christ. Something that was hidden, a mystery, has been revealed, has been made known to us. And the mystery is this. All along, God has intended to bring unity to all things on, in heaven and on earth. All along, God's intention, God's plan, was to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. Now I ask you, where before have we encountered this imagery of heaven and earth becoming one? The Garden of Eden. And later, in the design of the tabernacle and the temple as well. The garden is where, from the beginning, heaven and earth overlapped. It could be in two places at once. And now once again, God has a plan to bring us back to that place, to help us find our way back home into this sacred overlap where God dwells with us and we dwell with God like never before, where we dwell with God who is Emmanuel, God with us. And this was in the mind of God, Paul tells us back in verse 4, from the found, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the cosmos. And what we will find as we make our way through Ephesians is that this theme of oneness, this theme of unity, of bringing, of, of the coming together of all things, is all over the place. Paul will return to it over and over again. Let's look at the next section of this introduction. And as, as we do, I want us to notice that something happens here. We go, if we were talking about one group of people, now we're talking about two groups of people. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, verses 11 to 14. In him... We were also chosen, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Once again, as you saw in that last section, all of this takes place where? In Christ. By the time we get to this part of our passage, that phrase or some version of it has popped up 11 times in 12 verses. But as I said, <clears throat> Paul introduces something important here. Whereas in the first section, verses 3 through 10, Paul spoke of we and us referring to believers in Christ, now he speaks of you as well as we. You. Now I said earlier that the letter to the Ephesians doesn't have much of a crisis or an error that Paul is confronting or dealing with, but there are references here and there to some ongoing challenges that must have been widespread throughout the early church. And in this passage, we get a glimpse of one of those. The division, the tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. When Paul refers to we in the passage, he's referring to himself and his fellow Jews who have become Christians. When he refers to you, he's referring to non-Jews or Gentile Christians. And this is important. Every single time, every single time, the word you or your, pops up in Ephesians, it is plural, it is collective, it is not singular. And we in our 21st century USA minds could be tempted to see that, oh, he's talking to me, he's saying you as an individual, but he's not. He's speaking to the collective, the church, the body of Christ. And it makes a difference when we learn to hear it that way. So in verse 12, he refers to we who were the first to put our hope in the Messiah. Well, who would that be? That would be the Jewish people. Long before the Messiah came, they were putting their hope in him first. In verse 13, he says that you Gentiles also were included when you heard the message of truth. See, Paul is tipping his hand here to this theme of unity and oneness that he's already introduced. The mystery of God's plan is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, including or even Jews and Gentiles becoming one. God has always intended to create what Paul will later call in this letter one new humanity out of the two. In other words, and we're going to explore this more deeply in a few weeks, the gospel message is not only about union with God in Christ. The gospel message is about union or unity amid incredible diversity within the body of Christ between human beings. The gospel message is not only about union with God in Christ. It is about union and unity amid incredible diversity between brothers and sisters in Christ. Kim and I just started watching the uh, Amazon Prime's new series, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. And one of the biggest criticisms of that production so far is that Amazon has made the cast characters too diverse. There were no people of color in Middle Earth, we say. They argue that we should not reinterpret Tolkien's original invent, uh, uh, vision. But the reality is, hear me on this, the reality is where whatever their motives may be, the diverse nature of the new humanity was God's vision from the start. It is sad, I think, that sometimes God has to use people who don't know him in the arts or what have you to tell us something we should know. That diversity and unity and union amid diversity has always 
been a part of God's plan. Our relationship to God matters, and our relationship to one another in all our diversity matters to God. He is trying to create one new humanity. It takes what I presume are many non-Christians working in the film industry to tell us something we should know. And some of us react negatively. This vision for a new humanity made up of Jews and Gentiles, or as Revelation 7 puts it, every nation, tribe, people, and language was all a part of the mystery of God's will, a mystery that was once hidden but has now been made known. It has been revealed. We're going to have some fun with that word revealed next week. Enough about that. Let's get to the controversial part. (laughs) We need to look at some terms here. Terms that many of us find challenging as we read Paul's words are depending on our church backgrounds. Paul uses two words that likely raise questions for some of us. Chosen and predestined. Chosen and predestined. Now again, for some of us, those words aren't a big deal. Maybe we've figured it out, we've made our peace with it. Maybe, maybe we fall into one of the camps of the other denominations that are big on those words. For others of us, it depends on how we were raised, what theological traditions we've been exposed to or argued with. The question we often want to ask of these two words is this. If some are chosen or predestined by God to salvation, are others chosen or predestined not to be saved? If some are chosen or predestined by God to salvation, are others chosen or predestined not to be saved? See, we have been taught that this language is all about whether we are predestined to go to heaven or hell. But that is not the question Paul is answering here. That is not the question he's answering. To get to Paul's meaning, we need to think like Paul thought as best we can, and he did not think in our categories. He thought in the categories of ancient Judaism and the Hebrew Scriptures. The question is, what did chosenness mean there? The key to understanding these words in this passage is wrapped up, once again, in the phrase that appears some 36 times in Ephesians, in Christ. In Christ. I want you to note that Paul begins our section with this statement in verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. More literally, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the cosmos, the foundation of the world. That is, Christ pre-existed creation. Now, we know this. You may not remember it, but it's clear in other places. Christ pre-existed creation. So before any of this or any of us came to be, God chose Christ. To get there, he called Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. Jacob's name later becomes Israel. Israel's descendants become the chosen people of God. Through them, the chosen one, Christ, the Messiah, is born and comes into the world. It is not we who are chosen. It is Christ who comes to us through Israel, God's chosen people. He is chosen. The often repeated phrase, in Christ, reminds us that these words, chosen and predestined, refer first and foremost to Christ, not us. 
God did not predestine you or me to come to know and experience Christ and salvation. God predestined Christ to be the one through whom our redemption, our forgiveness, our salvation, and every spiritual blessing comes to us. We only become chosen and predestined, in other words, when we, by faith, choose Christ. For then we are found in Christ. I want to read you a quote uh, from scholar Ben Witherington III. He is one of my favorite New Testament scholars. It's a little dense, and I apologize for that, but the larger quote is in the Bible app live event. I encourage you to read it, but I think he gets at something that's important here, so I'm going to do it very slowly. Because I've read this a few times, you're hearing it for the first time. God, because of his great love, destined that those who believe in Christ would be adopted as his sons and daughters. The concept of election and destiny here is corporate. If one is in Christ, one is elect and a part of the destined messianic family, the family of the Messiah. Paul is not talking about the pre-temporal electing or choosing of individual humans outside of Christ to be in Christ, but rather the election of Christ and what is destined for those who are in Christ. That is, we are not chosen before we come to faith in Christ, but after. So later in the passage, it happens right here. When Paul speaks of the Gentiles who are now also in Christ, he does not use the language of predestination or chosenness. He uses the language of the Gentiles placing their faith in Christ. Verse 13, And you, Gentiles, also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. These Gentiles were included in Christ when they heard the good news and believed, not when God predestined them to it. It was their response. It was their faith in what they heard that caused them to be included in Christ. So to adapt an illustration that I used last time I preached on this passage, four years ago, if we were to take the church bus that's out in the parking lot, you can't miss it, if we decide we're going to hop in that, a bunch of us are going to hop in that, and we're going to go down to Indianapolis and we're going to watch a Colts game. That bus is predestined to go to that game. We have signed it out. It is fueled up, and we have a certified driver. That bus will leave the parking lot, and it will go to Indianapolis. And if you're on the bus, you too will be predestined to arrive at the stadium. If you're not on the bus, if you choose not to join us on the bus, you are not predestined to arrive at the stadium. It's your choice. The bus is going to the stadium. Get on the bus. You see, the invitation before us is not only to receive the riches of God's inheritance, it is not only to be forgiven and redeemed of our sins, it is not even only to know that we have all the rights and privileges as heirs to the throne. The invitation and the promise is that for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have responded to the good news of the, and placed our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, 
we are predestined to share in His divine nature and to become more Christiform, Christ-like people in this life and in the life to come. We are chosen, predestined, loved into, and graced into finding our way back home, back to that place where heaven and earth overlap, back to that place where we dwell with God and God dwells with us like never before, the unity of all things in heaven and on earth in Him. Amen. But it's quite possible that there are a few people here who aren't on the bus or online. And I want to invite you to get on the bus. I don't do this out of some... I don't, I don't talk about people entering into a relationship with God in Christ Jesus because I want them to be afraid of what's going to happen to them in, in eternity. It's a real issue. Please don't misunderstand me. I, I do it because I know what knowing Jesus can do in a life. And I want you to have it. It's an invitation. Because I don't know if you've ever traveled with a bunch of people on a bus, but you can have a lot of fun on the bus, even before you get to the destination. The analogy breaks down after a while, so don't think too hard on that. <clears throat> Ask the group of mops people who took the bus to a convention and it broke down and everything else happened. But Otherwise, it works. I want you on the bus. There's a party on the bus. So, whoever you are, if you're here, you're not there yet, you're not at that place where you've come to faith in Christ, I invite you to take that step. It's very simple. I'm going to lead us in prayer in a minute, and you can pray along with me, or you can go online to um, the communication card, check the box that says that you want to know more about what it means to know and follow Christ, and we will reach out to you. Or you can send an email to prayer at ecclife.net. That will go to the pastors. We will reach out to you. You can do it that way, or you can just pray with us. Would you join with me now as we pray? God in heaven, uh, I thank you for the beauty of these opening words of the Apostle Paul. I thank you for the truth of these words, for the, the profound nature of what they are trying to communicate. And I pray that by your Spirit, you would enable those words to pierce the hearts of any who have not yet discovered life in you, who have not yet taken the step of faith. God, I ask that you would do that. And if if they're wrestling with it, Lord, give them the grace, give them the courage to, to check the box on the communication card, to reach out through the email, to find one of us after the service, whatever it be, to take whatever next step they need to. But God, if there's someone here right now who is in that place, who is ready, would you give them the courage to pray with me as I lead them? If that's you, just silently pray what I'm praying. God, I'm tired of doing this on my own. I'm tired of running from you or of being ignorant of you. I confess that I have not done things the way I should. I confess that I have rebelled against you and sinned against you and others. And I ask for your forgiveness. God, draw me into your kingdom. 
Draw me into your family of people. Show me my place on the bus. And surround me with friends who will help me to walk the way faithfully. God, we ask that you go with us now. Those who may have prayed that prayer, those of us who know people that we are praying for, we pray, God, that we would live because we know these words are true. That one day you will. You will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. Help us to live that way, to celebrate that, and to bring you the glory and the honor and the praise that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.